Acts chapter 1. As we jump into this, I'm going to read a portion from Oswald Chambers. Anybody here know who Oswald Chambers is? My utmost for his highest? Okay. By the way, if you like Oswald Chambers, and I love Oswald Chambers, uh, his complete writings are in one volume. The bookstore will hate me for saying this, but you can order it if they don't have it. But there's a single volume of all of the writings of Oswald Chambers, really a treasure. It is remarkable. And if you read him, you know, this is a guy who writes about the deeper life. This is a guy who writes from a devotional place. This is a guy who you sense was in deep communion with the Lord and, and had that heart towards other believers. He was uh, converted. He was going to a Bible school. His parents were discouraged that he wasn't going to the University of Edinburgh. He decided he wanted to serve Christ with all of his heart. He says, from my very childhood, the persuasion has been that of a work strange and great, an experience deep and peculiar that has haunted me ever and ever. Here is the lamb and the wood, but where is the fire? Nothing but the fire of the most Holy Spirit of God can make the offering holy and unblameable and acceptable in his sight. I was in Dunan College as a tutor in philosophy. He recalled that Dr. F.B. Meyer came and spoke about the Holy Spirit. And I determined to have all that was going. And I went to my room and asked God simply and definitely for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever that meant. For that day on for four years, nothing but overruling the overruling grace of God and kindness and friends has kept me out of an asylum. He's going crazy begging for this. He said, at a little meeting held during the mission in Danoon, a well-known lady was asked to take the after meeting. She not, she did not speak or teach, but set us to prayer and then sang, touch me again, Lord. I felt nothing, but I knew emphatically my time had come, and I rose to my feet. I had no vision of God, only sheer dogged determination to take God at his word and to prove this thing for myself. And I stood up and I said so. That, um, that was bad enough, but what followed was ten times worse. After I had sat down, the lady worker, who knew me well, said, That is very good of our brother. He has spoken like that as an example to the rest of us. I got up again and said, I got up for no one else's sake. I got up for my own sake. Either Christianity is a downright fraud, or I have not got hold of the right end of the stick. And then and there, I claimed the gift of the Holy Spirit in dogged com commitment to Luke 11:13, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? He says here, I had no vision of heaven or of angels. 
I had nothing. I was dry and empty as ever, no power or realization of God, no witness of the Holy Spirit. And then I was asked to speak in a meeting, and 40 souls came out to the front. Did I praise God? No, I was terrified, and I left them to the workers, and I went to Mr. McGregor, a friend, and I told him what had happened. And he said, don't you remember claiming the Holy Spirit as a gift on the word of Jesus, that he said, you shall receive power? This is the power from on high. If the four previous years had been hell on earth, these five years have truly been heaven on earth. Glory be to God. The last aching abyss of the human heart is filled to overflowing with the love of God. Love is the beginning, love is the middle, and love is the end. After he comes in, all you see is Jesus only and Jesus ever. It was with implicit obedience that Oswald Chambers learned on the basis of Luke 11:13 that by faith we receive the fullness of God's Spirit, just as by faith we receive the Lord Jesus as Savior. I'm going to read that again. It says, It was with implicit obedience that Oswald Chambers learned on the basis of Luke 11:13, that by faith we receive the fullness of God's Spirit, just as by faith we receive the Lord Jesus as Savior. A simple headstone in the military cemetery in old Cairo marks his last earthly resting place. On the stone engraved for all to read, is the testimony of his life in his words, not of his family or friends, but rather this statement, majestic in its simplicity, taken from Luke 11:13. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask him? I believe he died at 41 years old of appendicitis in Egypt. And uh, what a man, and what a young man to die at that age. And yet, this is a guy who struck gold, as it were, just taking God at his word that he would pour out his Holy Spirit. How much more would the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? And he said, in that experience, it began with love. It continued with love. It ended with love. Having lived through in the early 70s, the Jesus movement, I can tell you that that was the predominant thing. It was the love of Jesus Christ. And everybody was an evangelist. Everybody was a pastor. Everybody was sharing. If we'd had iPhones, we'd have turned the world upside down. I remember one night Chuck was teaching, and here comes some hippie. There were a few of those. There was no People were leaning in the windows, sitting up the aisles. There was no room in the small chapel. And this guy comes walking up, and he's taking his shirt off, and he's going, the love, the love, the love. Remember, Chuck stepped back, and he put up his hands, and a couple of watchers grabbed him and pulled him off. But that was just, people didn't know what to do with it. It was so real. And it's, it can be grieving now to look at the church divided over politics, divided over race, divided over all of these things and finances and so forth, when what the Lord wants is that. 
He wants all men to know we're his disciples by the love we have one for another. He wants us to push aside those differences and let Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit weigh more on the scale than anything that could divide us. Amen? And as we journey through the book of Acts, we're going to constantly see that, the disciples together. We're going to constantly see 59 times in 20-some chapters we hear of the Holy Spirit. Uh, remarkable things going on as we go through this book. We have come as far, you remember, as verse 11, where it says there, these two men come as they were watching Jesus ascend, which also said, you men of Galilee, so we know it's the 11. Judas was the only Judean, and he had committed suicide after his betrayal. The angels said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, not into the sky, into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Every eye shall see even all the tribes of the earth shall mourn. The same Jesus is going to come. Now it's interesting, you know, we don't study a whole lot the Ascension. When you go through the four Gospels in the book of Acts, you have 20 times that the Ascension is mentioned. And in those 20 mentions of the Ascension, 13 different words are used to describe it. So this is a remarkable scene. When Christ ascends, it brings human DNA back into fellowship with the living and the holy God which secures all of our future and resurrection and the kingdom. It tells us then these disciples in verse 12, it says, Then returned they to Jerusalem. Jesus told them to abide in Jerusalem till they're filled with power. They returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey, which was 2,000 Meters, 2,000 steps. Um, it tells us in Luke they returned with great joy. You know, they've been with Jesus. They've been with him 40 days in his risen form. They, they've been with him now in these last instructions. And they watch him ascend into heaven and be engulfed, no doubt, in the Shekinah and the glory cloud. And it says they come back to Jerusalem reproved by angels. They come back to Jerusalem, Luke says, with great joy. About 2,000 steps from Jerusalem to the base of the Mount of Olives. Luke tells us in chapter 20, verse, 24, verse 50, I believe, that they went as far as Bethany, which is at the top of the mount on the other side, and that it was from there that he ascended. So these guys, this is the 11, they're with him to watch his ascension, to hear his very last words. And then there's a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem to the, to the foot of the mountain. That was good enough for them, evidently, though they're not under the law anymore. And they returned then to Jerusalem. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. Now, it's not the upper room where they had the Last Supper, because there's 120 people here when the Holy Spirit falls, which couldn't fit in that room. They're in an upper room somewhere. It's not identified for us. Where abode both... Now Luke names the 11 apostles 
because he's writing that Theophilus would understand and have the details he need to pull all of this together, and us. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, the eleven, are named there. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. He adds now, interesting, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So this is the last time Jesus had entrusted Mary to John. This is the last time we hear of Mary in the scripture. Uh, church tradition and the church fathers said she ultimately ended up in Ephesus with John, who was pastor there for 30 years, and that she died there in Ephesus. There are other traditions that seems to be the most consistent. But this is the last time a number of these apostles are mentioned in, in the New Testament. Um, as we go into this, certainly Peter kind of absorbs the first half of the book of Acts and Paul the second half. We see John moving through scenes. We're going to Philip and Stephen and different others. But here he names these 11. Now the interesting thing is going to tell us that we're about 120 there. It says they all continued. Now you remember. That's for 10 days. He was with them for 40 days, and they abode there until Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, so they're there for 10 days in this upper room. Doesn't mean that they're there 24 and 7, fasting, not eating for, you know, 10 days, but evidently daily they were gathering in this one place, and all day they continued with one accord in prayer. Now look. That idea there, in one accord, is used 11 times in the book of Acts, once in Romans. 11 times in Acts, and of the 11 times in Acts, seven times it's speaking of the disciples. It says they were of one accord. Now, it's made of two Greek words, one, homos, to be one, to be the same, to be one, and the other word has to do with passion, with emotion, with, you know, ardor. You know, you look up the definitions. So when they are of one accord, it isn't just theological, it's not just intellectual. These are men who walked with Jesus, talked to him for 40 days after his resurrection. They've seen him ascend. These men are no longer arguing over who's going to sit his right hand, who's going to sit his left hand. When you experience Jesus to that degree, you only care about loving each other and serving each other. And it says they're of one accord. The idea is the same passion, the same ardor. There's a fire in their hearts. So they're seeking him, doing what he's asked them to do. If you look in chapter 2, verse 1 there, it says... And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with, here it is, one accord 
in the same place. Then over in chapter 2, verse 46, it says there, And they continue daily with one accord in the temple, bringing a bread from house to house. That, that same passion, that same desire as they're there, gathered in that way. Uh, when the disciples were brought before the Sanhedrin, then they were beaten and threatened. It says, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is. Again, one accord in the book of Acts. Then I believe chapter 5, let me look at these places. 5, 5.12 says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Again, uh, we have an eight. Let me turn there. Verse six. These are my computer notes, so you have to be patient with me. Eight verse six says, and the people. Now the the. Philip's come to Samaria because they've been driven out of Jerusalem. And it says, And the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the, um, the miracles which he did. Chapter 15, I believe. Yep, 1525. Let me go there. This is the apostles at their meeting in Jerusalem. It tells us there in chapter 15, verse 25, it says, It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So that meaning in Jerusalem, it says, after these things are gone by, James has been martyred, all kinds of things are going on, and the church is still gathering with one accord. What, what an exhortation for us. If the Holy Spirit is mentioned 59 times in the book of Acts, then the fact that over and over, seven times we're told that they're of one accord, has got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we come to church, if there's people we don't love, well, you have to love them. You don't have to like them, but you gotta love them. You know, if there's if there's there shouldn't there's no room for racial stuff. There's no room for political stuff. There's no room for things that have so been so heartbreaking. And if there is, it's because we lack the Holy Spirit. You know, if you come and you're judgmental towards other Christians, that's your problem. Paul wanted to present the Corinthian church as a chaste virgin. To Jesus on, the, on the, when he comes, you know we we look at uh, we look at Balaam, Balak when he hires Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel who had been worshiping idols. They've done all kinds of things wrong, and Balaam it says offered his sacrifices when he went to speak. It said the Holy Spirit came on Balaam. And he says, how lovely are thy tents, O Jacob. There is no iniquity found in thee. That's because 
God's people are purified by the blood of God's Son. And if you can't see that, it's because you need the Holy Ghost that we're reading about here in the book of Acts. They were of one accord when they're gathered together. You can imagine imagine being in this room, by the way. These 120 are gathered there. It says there's women with them, and, and it tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there with his brethren, not his cousins, not people, children from the first marriage of Joseph, his brethren, Tertullian tells us these are the uterine siblings of Christ. And in those days, Peter stood up, having stood. Peter has been restored by Jesus. Peter is respected again. They're recognizing his personality in all of this. It says, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number uh, of names together, it tells us in a, in a parenthesis here, was about 120. Luke says about. We don't know where the other 500 are. You know, here's 120 of them gathered together. And Peter says, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas. This is Peter's statement and proclamation on the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. He has no doubt when he says this. He says, men and brethren, the Scripture, and this is his attitude toward the Scripture, must needs have been fulfilled. There's no other alternative. The days we're living in, you know, the globalism, the, the Antichrist may be alive somewhere. We don't know. Things are going to happen in the Middle East. The Scripture must needs be fulfilled. There's, there's no way around that. That's where we're living. You think the news is on TV? The news is in here. TV's trying to catch up with the news. Or they're trying to indoctrinate us with something else. But it says here, the scripture must needs be fulfilled. And then he talks about verbal inspiration, which the Holy Ghost, that's the source, by the mouth of David, that's the pen that he spoke through, the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spake before concerning Judas, which was to guide them that took Jesus. Now look, David. David was a man that had his problems, as we all know. It's one of the reasons we love David. It's one of the reasons we love Peter, because they're as carnal as we are. And David had his problems, but he says here that the Holy Ghost spake by the mouth of David. Again, 2 Samuel 23, when David signs off, he signs off as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Not as the giant killer, not as the king, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and he says, The Holy Ghost spake by David concerning Judas. Now he's back in, I'll read it, in uh, Psalm 41 when he says that, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, had lifted up his heel against me. He's going to reference two other psalms as well as we go in. He says he says the psalms spoke of this. David spoke of this and, and the scripture 
had to be fulfilled. That's where we're standing now is what he's saying. For he was numbered, Judas, with us and uh, had obtained part of this ministry. The word part there is lot. He had obtained a lot with us, a lot. That was his allotment. The lot had fallen to him. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and his bowels all gushed out. Thanks for that word picture, Pete. Uh, You know, Matthew tells us that he realized he had gone back to the priest with the 30 pieces of silver, the price of betrayal, and says, I've betrayed the innocent blood. And they say, what's that to us? You take that. He threw it down in the temple, and he left. And it says the priest went out and bought this field with that money, a place where strangers could be buried. But Judas went out and hanged himself. Now, we really don't know of anybody hanging themselves in that day. It's usually a word that means impaled, that he got a long, spiked log, 10 foot hour long, and he jumped off a cliff and he impaled himself on that. That would have been probably how he hung himself. Then he was probably there on that pike, whatever it was, when the earthquake happened. Then he falls down, and Peter gives us these wonderful details that his guts gushed out everywhere, his bowels. Thanks, Pete. But he says, he says that to say this, And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, the, the whole city knew about, for as much as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akaladama, that is to say, the field of blood. So it seems that Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, gave it that nickname when they talked about it. This is the field of blood. Now, Peter again says this, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric, episcopoi, his bishopric, his over place of oversight, let another take. So Peter does something interesting here because he's gonna he's gonna say we have to choose somebody. No doubt he had talked with the other ten guys. He didn't just make this up. He didn't just stand this stand up and say this by himself. The guys had probably prayed. They had probably talked. You know, they had probably gone through some things. And Peter then stands up and says, We have to this this has to be dealt with. This has to be settled. He says, because the, the scripture, which he says had to be fulfilled, he says, it also says this. Um, it says, now it's talking about the wicked, and in Psalm 69, it does say it in the plural. Peter's quoting the Septuagint and uses it in the single, let there, Peter says, let his habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. None be there in their habitation. So the first psalm he uses says he's been removed. He's gone. He's taken away. Don't let anybody be in his habitation. Don't let anybody dwell there. The second psalm that he quotes then is in regards to um, restoration. And there in Psalm 109 he says, 
Let his days be few and let another take his office. So Peter in Acts chapter 1 is saying, look, these things had to be fulfilled. David spoke about, you know, the, the, the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, the Lord being betrayed. He said, but the, the Psalms also said this. He had to be removed from his place. That took place. It, then it says that he has to be replaced. That has to happen. Now, the interesting thing as we go through the Psalms, look. Judas had to be replaced. James is going to be first martyr. He's not replaced. The other apostles are going to be martyred. They're not replaced. The reason is because, you know, there was 12 tribes, and there are the 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the future, and there are the names of the 12 apostles and the 12 foundation stones of the holy city, Jerusalem. So they understood there needed to be 12. As they were martyred, they didn't have to be replaced because they were they had what they were headed for. They were going to judge the tribes of Israel. Their names will be in the foundation stones. But you couldn't have a blank one there. So they, he's going to say this. This is what we need to do to replace the person who's going to do this. He had to be with us from the baptism of John. And the idea there is in the days that John was baptizing. It's not the baptism of Jesus by John. The idea is when John was baptizing, he says, until the ascension. Now, it doesn't say that person had to be with them at the ascension because the 11 were at the ascension. But from the baptism of John up until the ascension of Christ, it had to be someone who was going in and out with us the whole time that witnessed the ministry of Christ, that witnessed his resurrection, you know, so forth. So he's, he's doing this interesting thing, saying there has to be 12. Now, Paul was not there. Paul didn't go in and out with Jesus the whole time. Paul wasn't witness of his ministry, his resurrection, or his ascension. So this person here seems to complete the 12. In fact, we're going to see that's what the verses as we go forward will say. Uh, Paul, Paul obviously has his own and very unique place. But he says, you know, Peter says, look, the scripture said his habitation is going to be desolate. His place, nobody's going to dwell there. And his bishopric let another take. And he does something different there, uh, interesting it's let another, it's heteros, another of another kind. He don't, we don't need another Judas in the number here. So this is let another of a different kind take his place because he was the betrayer. Wherefore, Peter says, of these men which have companied with us, notice this, they've traveled with us, they've been with us, all the time that Jesus went in and out from us. Christ did that. Sometimes he was there, then he'd leave, then he'd come back to the guys. He says, there has to be somebody who went through all of that with us, was there the whole time. Beginning from the baptism of John, the days that John was baptizing in, unto the same day that he was taken up, notice, from us, from the eleven, and one must be ordained... Here's the apostolic calling to be witness with us of his resurrection. Uh, you know, not Paul. 
Paul was witness of his resurrection when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. This place had already been filled by then. So, you know, because people say, oh, were they in the flesh when they did this? These are the apostles, okay? These are not, uh, you know, to depend on your smarty attitude to keep the church where it should be. These are the apostles. These are led of the Spirit. These are men who loved Jesus and were with him. So to fulfill this number of 12, it has to be somebody who was around when John was baptizing, has to be someone who stuck with us until the ascension, has to be someone and that whole time was going in and out with us, hanging with us, hanging with the Lord, because that person is to be witness of the resurrection. That is the apostolic calling throughout the book. If there's no resurrection, there is no Christianity. If there's no resurrection, we might as well go home. If there's no resurrection, I wouldn't take tours of Israel. Why would I go to Israel to see where a martyr died? How many other martyrs died there? I don't even know their names. Go to Jerusalem because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Paul would say it this way. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Yea, and we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if there's no rising from the dead. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep, they've, they've died as believers, fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. In this life only, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from among the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So Paul says, look, you, you follow, there's a logic in this, you know. This is the apostolic testimony. They're giving testimony because they had walked with him. They spent 40 days with him after he rose from the dead. You know, what would take, for these guys, largely fishermen, the 11 are from Galilee. You read in church history and tradition about how they died, how they were shot full of arrows, drugged behind chariots, skinned alive, you know, beheaded. So many of them were crucified. Do you think a bunch of fishermen got together and said, look, this is bad, we followed this guy, didn't work out. So let's, uh, let's be blood brothers and we'll make a pact that whatever happens, we'll just tell people that he's risen from the dead. That'll look better for us. Do you think if this group did that, somewhere along the line as they're being crucified and skinned alive and martyred, somebody's going to say, hey, hey, we're only kidding. We made up the story. No big deal. No, they headed into that full bore. Because they had spent 40 days with somebody who came back from the grave and was alive, so death had no power over them. They had already seen the other side. They're completely sure of the conviction and of what they've seen. And they know there's life beyond the grave. 
That's Christianity. That's our message to this lost world because for every 100 people born, 100 people die. That is common ground for all of us, and nobody escapes it. And when you're standing in a coffin at a funeral, it doesn't matter what the Sixers are doing. doesn't matter what the Eagles are doing. doesn't matter what the stock market is doesn't matter. All of a sudden, you're standing here and realize, this is, this is, I'm, I'm going to be in a box too. This is human destiny. We're going to end up there. You know, we, the older you get, the more specialists you know. I don't know anybody who died of good health. This body wears out, the spacesuit. But if the same spirit, Paul says, dwells in you that raised Christ from the dead, he is also going to raise your mortal body. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. When I, again, when I see my dad, see my mom, see my grandpa, see my friends, it's not going to be, we're not ethereal kind of, run, oh, good to see you, and run right through each other. I'm going to grab my dad. This is going to be risen. I'm going to put my arms around him. And I'm going to hold him. When Jesus rose from the dead, it says they took hold of his hands. They fell on him. The women took hold of his feet. He was risen. And that's what we're headed for. You know, all God needs to do to raise us is have the software. He didn't need anything else. If he has the software... He can use any atoms to make molecules. Atoms are fungible, so you can collect any number of atoms and turn them into whatever molecules you want. And we're all going to be raised with the new model. We're getting an upgrade because you're the software, the spirit. He's going to raise us. As he was raised from the dead, Paul says, we will also be raised from the dead. So he says, we've got to find somebody here that was with us the whole time from the, from the days when John was baptizing and that was kind of humming, you know, through Galilee and, and Judea all the way up to the time just now. They stuck through everything with us, stuck through the things that the Romans were doing and the Jewish leaders were doing to us. They stuck through to the whole time. And, and, and a person all during that time who was hanging with us, who went in and out with us, who... Eusebius, one of the church fathers, tell us that both these men that they choose were of the 70 from Luke chapter 10 when, when the Lord sent out 70 disciples to go out and do miracles and so forth, that both these men were of the 70. Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that. So he says they had to be with us so that they can be witnesses of the resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Judas. And I knew he wasn't going to get picked because his name's too long for the stone. Uh, Joseph was such a common name in this day that there was always a surname attached, Joseph called Barnabas, Surname with a Latin name, Justice, which wasn't uncommon. And then it says, and the other one was Matthias. And everybody just knew who he, he was. His name was not that common. These are the two that have been appointed. They looked around, and they were in the upper room with them. These guys had stuck through the whole thing. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, 
which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two, it's really interesting, it's the Aratus tense, it's already been done, show which of these two you have already chosen. On heaven's side, it was a done deal. He already knew. And they say, you're the knower of hearts. By the way, that's both a consolation and a bit troubling sometimes, isn't it? That he knows our hearts. You know, racism, all the other things, trouble, hatred, that's all based on something different. You know, and David was anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. Samuel got there first and saw his brother who was tall and handsome, said, ah, it's the guy, went to pour the oil on him. God said, what are you doing, man? So he says, then he looked at all of his brothers and he finally says, you know, to his father, Jesse, you got any other kids? He says, ah, I got a hippie out in the field with this sheep playing his guitar. You know, just, and he brings him in and he's the one to be anointed. And this is a problem in every culture and in our nation and amongst, you know, everywhere, God, you know, because Samuel says, here's the problem. God, man, looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh upon the heart. Man looketh at the outward appearance, what color we are, what we wear, what our clothes say, how much they cost, where we go. Man looks at the outward appearance. Beauty is only skin deep, ugly goes clear to the bone. That's what they used to say when I was growing up. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's carnal. The Lord looks on the heart, and they say here, Lord, you're the, you're the one, you know the hearts of all men. So God knows my heart when I'm driving and somebody cuts me out, you know, cuts me off, and I immediately respond in the flesh. And then I say, oh, Lord, bless that person. Oh, I should have had a different response. I'm glad he knows my heart. Because, you know, the other thing went off first. Or when I'm saying, Lord, man, I just, you know, I know you need to pray more and read more. Lord, I want your Holy Spirit. How much more, your word says, will you give the Spirit to those who ask? It says he's the knower of hearts. He's the knower of hearts. He knows when our hearts lust after things they shouldn't as well. But he's the knower of hearts. You know, he, he said this in John, and this is no doubt why they're saying, Lord, you choose, because when he had chosen them, he said this to them, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, it shall be given to you. And then he said, goes on to tell them how the world's going to hate them and this and that and so forth. So here, you know, at this point, they're wise enough to say, all right, Lord, you choose. You're the knower of hearts. You, you know, you told us that we didn't choose you. You, choose, you chose us, so you know how this should roll out. We're not going to make the choice. You make the choice. They felt for sure it was one of these two men who had been that close proximity to them through the whole ministry. And he says, Lord, let us know which one of these two you have already chosen. That he may take part of this ministry and apostleship. 
from which Judas, by transgression, Judas, his will was involved, by transgression, and Jesus reached out to him to the last minute, should take this apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his place. Almost every Bible scholar agrees that is the place of suffering and darkness. And they gave forth their lots. Now, it's so interesting here. These guys are going to cast lots. It says over in verse 17, for he was numbered with us and had obtained the same Greek word, part, had obtained lot. You know, it had fallen out to him there, and they're seeing here that it's going to fall out to them. Look, here's the interesting thing. After this chapter, when the Holy Spirit falls in chapter 2, there's never lots again in the New Testament. There's, they were led of the Spirit. They were spoken to by the Spirit. The Spirit said, set aside Paul and Barnabas and ministry I've called them to and so forth. Paul and Silas. So at this point, they're still going to cast lots. The church has not been born yet. There's still an Old Testament economy here. And it was the way things were done. Leviticus instructed them to cast lots. Now, the way that that was done was they probably took Matthias and Joseph, wrote them on two pieces of paper, put them in some type of urn or container, and then they would shake it. And the first one that flew out was Matthias. And it was done that way for thousands of years. And that's why it says the lot fell upon Matthias, because it was his name that came out and fell there. Um, it's so interesting because if you're a church history guy, the Moravians started to cast lots again. Because the Moravians said, look, there's things in Scripture that are clear. We know what God wants us to do with this. We know what God wants us to do with that. But there are some things we encounter where Scripture doesn't address the issue, so we should use that. We should cast lots to do that. And they started to get into it uh, to where Zinzendorf said, you guys are going to cast lots, and somebody who ain't called the ministry is going to end up to be in the ministry, and they're going to get burned and burned out. You know, he rebuked them. But it's the, for you and I, we don't cast lots. You don't have to cast lots. Everybody here understand? People here put out fleeces. You don't have to put out a fleece. You know, what's your fleece going to be? If I get up in the morning and the skin's all wet and the ground is dry, then I know this. If the ground is wet and the fleece is dry... We've got Jesus. We've got his word. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got much clearer direction. But here, and God honored it, they cast lots, it tells us. It's so interesting. And it's the end of that whole era. There are no lots after this in the book of Acts or through the New Testament. They gave forth their lots, plural, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. If you look down in chapter 2, uh, verse 14, it says, And Peter standing up with the eleven. So if it's Peter and the eleven, that makes twelve. Yeah, Matthias has got the place, okay? If it's, if it's eleven and Peter, that's twelve. In chapter 6, verse 2, um, it says this, then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. The twelve. 
And he's called that again. This is before Paul is saved. This is before any of that. So it seems clear, at least to me, that when we get to heaven, you know, the 12 stones going to say Matthias. If I get to heaven and it says Paul, I'll be just as happy. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, the 12, you know, 12 apostles sitting in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel. It would seem that's Matthias. That's why they had to get that number. And then as the others are martyred, they don't have to replace them because their place is secure. It's there. So we come this far, and then if the Lord tarries next week, they're there at Jerusalem, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. The church is born. Jesus, crucified on the Passover, and he rises from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. When the, the priest goes into the temple with a shock of grain, and he waves that shock of grain in the temple, looking forward to the harvest that would come 50 days later, it was celebrated on Pentecost. So you have Jesus, the first fruits of those that slept. 50 days later, on the, the Feast of Pentecost, when the harvest is celebrated, the church is gathered in. So I'm hoping that continues on the Feast of Trumpets. We get out of here. That's just an observation. So, look, going through these things, um, one accord. That has to be an important word to us. If it was important, the book of Acts has to be important to us today. One accord. That you and I would be filled with the Holy Spirit. A Spirit-filled Christian is not a title. It's a condition. How many people do you know that say they're filled with the Spirit, they're living in sin, they're doing some crazy thing? No, a Spirit-filled Christian is a condition, and we need to be filled daily. Martin Lloyd-Jones, at the end of his career, started to take a lot of heat from contemporary theologians because the more he studied, the more he realized how important a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit was. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the only reason the church is here is because it's gone from Pentecost to Pentecost to Pentecost to Pentecost. And we need another Pentecost today if the Lord's, you know, if he's going to blow the trumpet and take us out of here tonight, I'm good. If we're going to be here for 10 years, who wants to be here like this? If we're going to be in the middle of madness, then, Lord, fill us with your spirit so we go through it the right way. Amen? So let's do this. Tommy's going to come. We'll sing a song or two. I'll pray. I want you to pray. The two things. I want you to pray, Lord, if I need to be a person who can be with one accord with my brethren, would, would you do that in my life, Lord? Because I grew up Henri, I grew up with a bad attitude. I grew up, and, and now, Lord, I want you to have my heart. And I want you to show me how to love. And you can't have the love of Christ shed abroad from your heart without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. So I would say pray two things. Let's pray that God would make us one. He said, all men will know you're my disciples by the love they have one for another. They should come in here, if they do, and they should see what binds us together, that our commonality outweighs our differences. 
Secondly, we should pray, all right, Lord, fill me with your spirit. You know, Oswald Chambers, that's it, I'm done, I can't stand it. If that's all, you know, there's got to be more. And then the, the work of the spirit in his life, to the, even on his gravestone, how much more will the Father give the spirit to those who ask? Let's ask genuinely. Amen? And let's do it together in one accord. Let's stand. I'll pray. I encourage you to pray along with me. Then we'll lift our voices in song. Father, I know you've overheard. So, book of Acts, Lord, here we are. It says this was, the, the book of Luke was what you began to do and teach. And, Lord, certainly we're Acts 29, we're Acts 30, we're Acts 40, we're Acts chapter 50. We're, we're still in the book of Acts, Lord. We're still in need of, Lord, first of all, Lord, a, a great sense of passion that's common to us, Lord. For every one of us excited about Jesus, we know that should be contagious, that every joint and ligament should supply. And Lord, we're aware that can't happen without your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we we don't want to be content. The world we're in has changed. So much of what we held on to and what distracted us has faded away, Lord. So much of what we took for granted would continue. seems that it may never come back. But, Lord, the things that were always important of your kingdom and of your forgiveness and of your blood and of heaven were always there, Lord. But we didn't measure them accurately. And we're doing that now, Father. And we are also keenly aware that Without a fresh filling of your spirit, we will never accomplish what you'd have us do in these last days. You've chosen us for such a time as this. Lord, you didn't let us loose on our culture to do this in the flesh. So, Lord, we would ask, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your spirit as we sing, as we lift our voices. You hear our hearts now asking, let it be our prayer tomorrow morning. Let it be our prayer tomorrow evening. We, we hear Oswald Chambers say he just pled for several years and then... Lord, you, you fell on him in remarkable and powerful ways. Lord, would you do that in our lives, Lord? We're keenly aware, Lord, that we don't want just an objective theological relationship with you. We want a subjective relationship as well. We want reality. We want your presence, Lord. We want, Lord, to be filled with your spirit and with your love. Lord Jesus, we ask now, everybody in this room, Lord, hear their hearts right now, Lord looking to you, asking for a fresh filling, Lord. Something that could never be earned or deserved or worked for. Something we could never be worthy of, Lord. Something, Lord, your person being poured out on us because of the completed work of Christ, the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. And let us, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in these last days, Lord. If you don't do that in us, nothing will happen. Please don't leave us to our own strength and to our own methods and our own ways. We look to you, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name for your glory. Amen.